All right, folks, so before we get started with this episode, I wanted to introduce it because this is a little bit different than anything we've really done up until now, and the subject matter might not make a lot of sense. So uh, this is an interview with Ari Weinzweig, who is the CEO of Zingerman's, which is a community of businesses uh, based here in the United States in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So Ari is somebody that I deeply respect and deeply admire and I would kind of consider him like an indirect mentor so he hasn't actually mentored me but indirectly through his books and through his talks and just some general back and forth that we've had over email he's taught me a lot about how not just to run a business but also how to conduct myself when it comes to how I just run myself in the context of a business and I think his perspective is really unique and really special and deserves a little bit of attention, perhaps outside of the kind of the audiences that it might usually attract. So Ari isn't a technical person. He's not in the startup world. He's he's running food businesses and he's been doing it for 38 years. So this is somebody who uh, is not just good at what they do, but they're they're really good at what they do for specific reasons. And it's somebody who's learned a lot of lessons and fortunately is very willing to share those lessons and give his time back to other people who are interested in this stuff. And so, uh, again, Ari is somebody that I, I deeply admire and deeply respect, and I think you're going to learn a lot from this one. Uh, so definitely give this a listen and, and maybe multiple listens here because there's there's a lot of good stuff in here. I know I'm, I'm, I've already listened to it a couple of times and, and I'm going to keep doing that because there's a lot of like really like, huh, that's a, that's a good thing to think about. Uh, kind of moments. So, so I hope you enjoy this one. If you have any questions or comments, definitely leave them down below and I'll forward them over to Ari. So that way, if you have a specific question for him or about something that he says in this interview, uh, I'll make sure that it gets to him and try and get a response for you. Uh, so, so that way you can kind of connect with Ari and, and see what he's like, cause he's, he's a really special guy. Uh, so that's going to do it. Uh, I hope you enjoy this one and, uh, yeah, let's get to it. All right, so um, <laughs> this is a bit of a strange one because the, the show that we're running here is primarily pointed at computer programmers and mm -hmm. software folks, but you're in the food business. Yeah. And so this may seem a little bit strange for people who have never heard about you before or anything like that. So I don't want to spend too much time on it, but it'd be good to give a little bit yeah. of a backstory. Yeah. Like who is Ari, what is Zingerman's? How, how did we get here? Yeah. I'll let you tell the story how the two of us got here. but. Uh, <laughs> Well, how I got here is I grew up in Chicago. I came to Ann Arbor to go to school at U of M. Mm -hmm. I studied Russian history, uh, as you know, with a little nice focus on the anarchists. And uh, after graduating with my history degree, I just mostly knew I didn't want to go home. And in order to make that financially viable, I needed a job. Mm -hmm. One of my roommates was waiting tables at a restaurant that's not here anymore, but in downtown Ann Arbor. So I went in there looking for a place to work. Uh, hopefully waiting tables, but they didn't hire me for that. And I reapplied as a busser and they didn't hire me for that. And I ended up going back again uh, and taking a job as a dishwasher. So that's how I got into food. Uh, no glamorous lifelong passion for cooking or business or entrepreneurship or any of that. Uh, I just really lucked out and I stumbled into work that I really love and then also great people. So Paul Saginaw, who you know of, uh, my partner's been he was the general manager at that restaurant. Yeah. Uh, Maggie Bayless from Zing Train, where we're sitting right now. Our training business was a cocktail waitress, and Frank Carollo, the one of the partners at our bakery, was a line cook. So, cool. Who knows why we were all in there together? But we've been at it 
you know, in one form or another for a pretty long time. So I stayed and worked for that restaurant group for about four years, prepping and then line cooking and then managing kitchens. And uh, I left there in the fall of 81. I didn't really know what I was going to do next. It was just time to get out of there. And, uh, and then I, uh, three days later, Paul called me and he said there was this little building coming open near uh, Monaghan Seafood Market, which he and Mike Monaghan had opened. Uh, in the intervening years and we went in there and we looked at it and uh, four and a half months later we were open so he had grown up in Detroit where you could get good deli food and in Chicago you could get it but you couldn't get it here and so that was how we decided to do that and uh, March 15th like I said is when we opened up and we had I think 29 seats and 25 sandwiches on the menu and a little bit of what's now called specialty food and uh, back then it was probably just called weird and, uh, and that's how we got going. One thing I do want to do to give context is explain what Zingerman's is, but more from the ZCOB or Zingerman's Community of Businesses perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so there are, you started in 1982, mm -hmm. um, but now there are, is it nine businesses? Yeah, I don't know, it depends how you count, nine, ten, whatever, but we have okay. a whole, uh, whatever, community, like you said, uh, he, uh, everything's here in the Ann Arbor area. Okay. Uh, so we're sitting at Zing Train, which is our training business, and then across the way is our coffee business, our candy yeah. shop, where we make uh, handmade candy bars and stuff. And then, uh, delicious. Creamery. They are delicious. <laughs> Creamery, Bakehouse, and mail orders a mile or two that way. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Zierman's Roadhouse is a sit-down restaurant that's all regional American food. Miss Kim is Korean food. Uh, Cornman Farms is uh, in Dexter, so 15 minutes or so west of here, and we do uh, events, weddings, corporate events, that sort of stuff out there. Yeah. And uh, and then the deli is still the main original business, so that's pretty good. And then the newest thing is our food tours, which we've been doing here and there off and on for 20 years, but we formally made it a business about 13 months ago, and now it's ramping up. Very cool. So out of curiosity, because that's that's kind of intimidating. <laughs> Hearing yeah. about all this stuff and yeah. just thinking about yeah. well, managing that. Yeah, well, that's 38 that. years, 37 and a half years down the road, so. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we were talking about this morning. He was trying to chill me out. He's like, well, just realize, like, you're comparing your yeah. few years to yeah. 38 years, so. Yeah, plus we still have all the same problems everybody else does, so. Yeah, and this is what I want to talk about, because yeah. I think this will be helpful to a lot of the people listening, because they look at something like Zingerman's and all these different businesses and the packaging and the branding and all that stuff and it's just like how do you get there how do you do that yeah and so I think it's helpful to kind of go back to the very beginning so back in 1982 mm -hmm. when you first open and talk about where you were at and if you know anything about it where Paul was at in terms of your emotional state of mind and just your thought process about how do we get this yeah. little deli off the ground and yeah. actually sustain it well, I mean, it's a long time ago. Uh, yeah. You know, it was somewhat easier for me because I had already quit my job and so I wasn't mm -hmm. really giving anything up. You know, I think it makes it, at least for me, it's harder if I'm like letting go of something. Mm -hmm. uh, but in this case, I had already decided and I was gonna, and announced I was gonna move on anyway, so I needed to do something. I mean, it's not like I had a lot of money, so I was gonna work somewhere or do this so hmm. seemed like a better option um, you know it's high anxiety but I guess it's I, I don't know it's hard to really know I don't know if it's really any more anxiety than now I mean I think I've never taken it for granted hmm. like maybe for a day <laughs> here and a day there but 
I, I mean, I think I realistically, I, I hopefully we all live with the reality that, you know, whatever we've achieved is great, but in a year we could be out of business. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not that hard to fail. Uh, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to stay healthy, but it's, yeah. you know, and I mean, physi physiologically, we know, I mean, even if you get in shape for 10 years, if you stop working out for two months, it's going to come apart pretty quick. So, you know, it's the same in an organization. Okay. So for you personally, it's, you, you mentioned this feeling of anxiety. Was there ever any fear that it was going to fall apart? Yeah, every day I have that fear. Still? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. So how do, you, how do you personally manage that? Well, as you know, I wrote a whole book on managing ourselves. Yeah, uh, I know, I know. Which sort of shares my approaches, but I mean, it's, you know, it's learning a lot more about oneself and learning about emotion and how to honor it and manage it better and, uh, you know, starting to understand that the anxiety is kind of a normal state and like if you're trying to achieve something, there's nobody who's trying to achieve something that doesn't have anxiety about not succeeding. I mean, hmm. you know, whether it's parenting or professional basketball or programming, I mean, they're all, if you're trying to do something great, then by definition you have some concern that you're going to screw it up. I mean, so... Uh, I think it's actually normal and then you know just finding ways to reground regularly so I mean, mm. as you probably know from the book but I mean I journal every morning and I run every day and uh, we cook dinner at our house every night and you know for me those are like three anchors that sort of are in every single day and and then uh, you know just trying to get around good people and you know in in the organization and out and keep learning and keep growing and just keep breathing you know it's it's easy to get overwhelmed and I, my experience is when we feel overwhelmed we don't get much done <laughs> uh, and I've come to realize it's actually the feeling of being overwhelmed less than the actual work that's the problem yeah <laughs> because you're the work just takes time and you'll get it done. But when we start to feel completely overwhelmed, then we start to obsess and we spend a very uh, inordinately high, in my opinion or experience, uh, amount of energy worrying about being overwhelmed, mm -hmm. which just detracts from getting the work done. So it actually makes it worse. Right on. So you have those, this is something I'm very curious about because yeah. I, I struggle with this personally quite a bit. So. In your head, is there anything that you say to yourself or a way that you talk to yourself? So outside of those activities that you do, mm -hmm. is there something that you say like, hey, Ari, chill out. I need to focus on the problem at hand or the task at hand? Well, yeah, I guess sort of. I mean, it's, I, I think, you know, years ago, I, not in an uncommon way, had a pretty harsh internal dialogue going, you know, mm. very self-critical, but I learned through, you know, going to therapy and reading and self-reflection, that was just, you know, I sort of realized one day, like, if I talked to the people who worked here the way I was talking to myself, they'd quit. So <laughs> I, I kind of put two and two together, thinking, yeah. like, that can't be very good. Uh, and so, um, you know, out of that, started to work on trying to treat myself with the same dignity I would treat anybody else, you know, which doesn't mean anything goes, it just means when something goes wrong, it's like a normal human behavior to make mistakes. And, um, you know, and then, yeah, having internal dialogue, which in essence, you know, we've all internalized the negative internal dialogue. We've all internalized the negative dialogues that we grew up with mm -hmm. by internalizing the voices of the people who had 
whatever to say and I right. think we can internalize the positive ones too and a lot of people do I mean you know they remember their grandmother telling them this or their grandfather telling them that or their high school basketball coach telling them this or their press friend you know I mean so it's just it's hard to stay grounded all, it is take all the help I can get right on so that's that's actually an interesting and unique kind of attitude that you have and the way that you do things in, in your yeah, the fourth book uh, which is on the power of beliefs in business yeah, yeah. you talk about this idea of I want to make sure I don't butcher the name but it's a uh, hopeless shelter is oh, that right yeah of having a shelter for hope yeah hopelessness yeah can you explain that a little bit well there's two essays as you know in the book about hope uh, in the hmm. workplace it's something I hadn't really thought about I mean clearly hope is you know everywhere or lack thereof is everywhere but mm. uh, really through our own a couple not great stories uh, where I sort of observed heard you know people in leadership roles here not intentionally but unwittingly basically crush the hope of people who were working here and I, they didn't come in and go I'm going to crush somebody's hope today it's just you know through behaviors that we've all learned you know how to cut somebody off or whatever I've done it I'm sure a, a, a thousand times mm. uh, you know but but, and then realizing like, wow, that was not good. And then realizing fairly quickly, it wasn't really their fault because we've never actually talked about it. We've never trained anybody on it. We've never given them an expectation about it. Hmm. You know, so it, it starts with us. And, and then just starting to look at, you know, do some homework on like, how do you build hope, right? And then turning it into what we always do, which is, you know, teachable points. So I ended up with a, I mean, as you know from the book, I started this model of an ecosystem mm -hmm. for organizations and hope was the sun. So then when I was working on the hope stuff, there were six elements, so I made it into a star, you know, so mm -hmm. they're just, you know, catchy, easily remembered models, but uh, is to look at the six things that are on there that you can do to help build hope in the people that you're around. I mean, in my case, it was the people we were working with, but you could also do it for yourself. Uh, and you could do it for kids or, you know, so anybody in your life. I mean, mm -hmm. so, and then the hopeless, you know, I, I like to play with words, as you know, and so homeless shelters, and then I realized, you know, people who have low hope need help. I mean, it's not, I'm not blaming them. It's just through whatever circumstances, you know, the world has thrown at them or blocked them from entry into more positive paths or made it really difficult to get into more positive paths or they don't have, you know, they weren't raised to get on those paths, not through malice, but just the way it is. Then mm -hmm. uh, how do you help to create more hope, you know, and create, I mean, it was just in my mind, but create shelters where people could have some solace and some support, you know, to overcome that because it's, I think it's almost impossible to do on your own. I mean, mm -hmm. it definitely is. Actually, on the, the ride here, Dimitri and I were talking about this. Um, he works at a community college out in Chicago, mm -hmm. and he talked about just a lot of the students that he has to work with come from these backgrounds and situations yeah. where it's not yep. conducive to, you yeah. know, doing yeah. and achieving things. Yep. So. Yeah, but I mean, as a, as a collective, I mean, if we don't help those people, then they're not going to learn. And then, right. you know, there's things that you and I probably grew up with that were, in quotes, obvious that aren't mm -hmm. obvious to everybody else. So. You know, I mean, it's easy to critique people from the outside, but, you know, whatever. If nobody showed you how to drink good coffee and you're still drinking Folgers, it's not bothering you. I mean, it's it's only once you start to elevate the uh, quality of your 
in that case, coffee experience that you start to realize how not good the other ones are. And I think it's true for life in general. Definitely. Okay, so this brings me actually to something I just read in your most recent pamphlet yeah. on Emma Goldman. Yeah. So I don't remember which number it was, uh -huh. but one of the lessons was this idea of building self-awareness. Yeah. And that plays into everything you just yeah. talked about. Yeah. So I'd be curious, is there anything you do to do that, to actually yeah. form that? Well, I, again, I mean, I think the journaling and stuff is really, really helpful. I yeah. swear by it. I do it every morning. Uh, and I think the running for me is a little like meditation or, or you know, other mm. people do that. But it's a, it's a meditative experience because I, I mean, although my mind is moving, it's not like, it's not the same as working on something. I'm just sort of out there running. Yeah. Uh, you know, so those are really helpful. I mean, therapy I mentioned has been hugely helpful. Uh, you know, reading books, talking to people who know more than I do. I mean, all those things play into it. Right on. So are those your, like, reflective periods? Or do you have time where it's just you quiet hanging out? Well, the journaling is locked in reflective period. Right. Uh, the running can be, depending on the day and my brain and how I'm doing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and then I think as I... I would say as I built self, better self-awareness, I still screw up regularly, but as I build better self-awareness, then I can tell when I'm, you know, out of it or not in good space. And then if I can do something to help turn it around. Right on. Okay, so I don't want to lose sight of the overall theme here, which is you're yeah. just getting started, scared shitless, yeah. don't know what to do. Um, so I'd be curious. So. Getting to this point, so we're sitting in Zing Train, and yeah. you've got your financial forecasts across yeah. the different things that you're selling and yeah. projects you're working on. How do you start down that path? Because obviously you don't just show up tomorrow and do this necessarily. For the open book stuff, you mean, or just in general? In general. So if I'm well, I mean, one or two people, you know, I mean, getting going. I mean, part one of the leadership series is mostly about that, so it's got a lot about our visioning process, which I swear by, which I, we didn't write a vision when we started, but we had one in our heads. It's, I, I was asking, and there are about 12 natural laws of business that my belief, as you know, is that every healthy organization, wherever they might be, is living in harmony with those natural laws, and, mm. you know, just like gravity, it, you don't have to really understand it, but it works, you know, and... Uh, the first one on the list is that all thriving, healthy, whatever organizations have a vision of greatness that, you know, is helping them go where they want to go. And I mean, we know that's true of social change. We know it's true in music. It's true in sports. I mean, so it's true in business, too, and it's true in life in general. Uh, so that would be a really great place to start. And then in the book, it's got other stuff about mission and values and culture building and systems and stuff like that. Yeah. So for the people listening, if you haven't heard about this book or you haven't heard me mention it, because I've mentioned it quite a few times, uh, this is the, <laughs> the first book in a series of four uh, lapsed anarchist guide to running a great business. Is that right? Uh, close. Approach to building a great business. <sighs> close. Okay. Close um, so definitely check this book out because we talked about this on a past episode of this show about creating a vision and things like that. And the way that I learned that was from this guy. So if you're, you're kind of struggling to figure out where do I go or how do I start down the path, definitely pick that book up and we'll, we'll link it so you guys can, can pick up a copy of it. But definitely check that out because that'll get you in the right frame of mind so that you're not kind of scrambling and worry about moving in a bunch of different directions. 
So one of the things that you indirectly taught me, and this was one of those kind of turning points in how I thought about all this stuff, was, and this is in the first book, you talk about sometimes you're going to be in a situation where you have to press on alone without what you described as one-tenth of the support you need. Yeah. And one of the, the natural laws of business, the 11th, is that it generally takes a lot longer than you think yeah. to make something great happen. Yes. So could you talk about that and yeah. more from the perspective of how to get your mindset into that place Yeah. so you're not worrying all the time? Well, I think they're not really that related. Some people succeed and they're still worried. That's just the illusion that when you achieve X, Y, and Z, you're going to stop worrying in the same way people have the illusion they're going to you know, make X amount of money and then they're going to not worry about that. Hmm. Uh, I think they're somewhat related but mostly separate. So one is learning not to worry hmm. <laughs> because it's unhelpful. And the mindfulness stuff in part three, which I'm not the world's expert in, but helped me a lot is just to remember to be present in the present and not, you know, because worrying is basically anxiety over what could happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, guilt is probably worrying about what already happened. Uh, but being in the present, it's either like, let's do something about the future or let's not worry about it because, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, what um, you going to do? So, so uh, I think, you know, there's most people in life who have achieved anything, whether it's at the age of 12 or 102, have stayed with something a long time. So, I don't know, like if a kid learned how to play violin, I mean, they didn't learn in a day. Yeah. <laughs> it's just by the time they're 14, if they started at four, they forgot how long they've been playing it. You know, and and when you, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, I mean, if you turn on some basketball game and you see, I don't know, whoever is famous, Stephen Curry, and he's mm. incredible. Well, the guy's been, you know, his dad was an NBA player. I mean, he grew up from the time he was probably one. Yeah. And I don't mean he doesn't have talent. Clearly he does, but there's an enormous amount of work that went into helping him get to where he is. He didn't just show up, you know, buy some gym lessons and become an NBA all-star, you know. So, and I think that's true in anything. And I, I guess we've been, we're, we are generally fed, you know, beliefs that you're like, if you're really great, you're going to get great at it in a week or a day or it's your natural talent or whatever. But, yeah. you know, I, everything I've read, it says the other way, which is that long term sticking with something, working really hard towards a vision of greatness mm. will always be talent. So talent without the work isn't going to make it. Mm. And, and I think, you know, to your point from the beliefs book, it's just changing our beliefs. Like if you have the belief that in a year you should be this giant, quote, success, whatever that means, yeah. it's not that likely, you know, but, but like in your world, people read about Facebook or they read about, you know, whoever that went public and got 80 gazillion dollars, but, mm. you know. It's just not realistic. No, and I don't mean it's not a lot of work, and it's probably a bad metaphor, but I mean it's a little like going to California in the mid-19th century trying to get gold. And <laughs> there's no question that the people who pay for gold longer hours and were better at it probably increased their odds of getting it. But, I mean, it's not like everybody who went out there got rich, and it was pretty unglamorous most of the time. Yeah. Um, you know, and they were living in the wilderness, so now it's more living in the emotional wilderness. 
but you still got to have that stamina to survive that. Like you know, like I said in there, I mean, it's in, in our fantasy. Like everybody in unison comes and gives us all their help and resources. And I don't mean a lot of people won't help if we if we ask. They probably will. But hmm. a lot of us, you know, who get into this tend to try to figure it out on our own because we don't realize that it's actually better to ask for help. Yeah. Uh, so that's another piece of the self management that could make a difference. Okay. I had a question in there. I'm trying to remember it now. Lost it. Okay, so, and this is part of why I picked up your books in the first place, is we share a similar, I guess you've described it as a mild distrust for authority. Uh-huh. And there's this whole theme of anarchism and all yeah. of that stuff. And you talk yeah. about the separation between anarchy and anarchism, yeah. which I don't think a lot of people get. Yeah. So could you kind of unpack that and then explain yeah. how that plays into what yeah, you do? Yeah, totally. So uh, as I said, I mean, I studied in school. I was drawn to it for any number of reasons, probably the same as you. Hmm. Um, I don't know how much I understood. You know, I understood more than the average human who doesn't understand it at all. but. You know, so I would say then about 10 years ago, I went back and, you know, without getting into the whole story of it, started to restudy it in a new way. And it really blew my mind because I, I realized that a, a lot of how we were already running the organization was aligned with what I had been drawn to, hmm. uh, you know, around treating everybody with dignity and involving people more and running the organization and stuff like that. And then. Uh, B, I realized that a lot of it is very parallel to what's now promoted as progressive business at, you know, positive organizational scholarship at the business school or whatever. It's it's a very similar kind of stuff. And so then I started to study harder and harder and harder. And, you know, to your question, I mean, I think the average American, and obviously by saying average, I'm stereotyping, but, I, you know, mm. has no clue, not out of ignorance. They just don't know. I mean, because right. the stereotypes that are out there are, you know, angry, you know, teenagers the throwing rocks. A scrawled on the yeah, ground. and, you know, for sure that's happened, but it, it, it's no different than, you know, holding whatever, all Christians accountable for the Crusades or, you know, every American responsible for the My Lai Massacre. I mean, it's just like bad things have happened in any setting, but, yeah. you know, but really in studying, I mean, it's a belief system. It's not about politics. It's actually the opposite of, of politics. Mm -hmm. um, so Gustav Landauer, who's one of the people who I read in recent years whose work I really liked, said, uh, paraphrasing, uh, it might even be the exact quote, but he said, we have no political beliefs, we have beliefs against politics. And so, mm -hmm. what, what, you know, in essence, it's really about a belief system about how you live in the world and how you treat everybody around you and how you treat yourself. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's a belief that hierarchy, although operationally can be helpful, in any other form is generally not helpful. So mm. the belief that you're the vice president, you're better than the truck driver, or the belief that the boss has all the answers, like those things are not helpful. And, right. um, you know, and then when you, when you switch those beliefs and then you have the belief that everybody's a creative, intelligent human that can contribute effectively to whatever they're working on, it starts to change the conversation because whoever's beyond the counter, I mean, my job is to help get them you know, to bring their creativity and insight to the fore so we get benefit from it. Mm. So it's a lot of that. I mean, and then you mentioned Emma Goldman. So she, you know, there's some, a lot of good stuff, I, I think, in there. But, you know, the idea of 
uh, you know, that all of what we do day to day has to be congruent with the ends that we want to achieve in order to make it work. Mm. So if you want to have a positive organization, you can't yell at people for not being positive. Uh, you know, <laughs> if, if we want to have good food, we need to, in the, in the restaurant, we need to eat good food. If we, mm. you know, if we want to have service on the front line that goes to the, you know, customers like you when you come in, we need to treat the staff the same way. So it, it's, you know, all of that is big. And then the visioning, you know, she said, if you, if I, if we can't dream any longer, we die. And I, mm. uh, you know, I don't think that means physiologically, but I think spiritually for sure. I mean, to, to your point about hope when people have no positive picture of the future, really, what's the point of doing anything? You know, you do as little as you have to. So anyways, a lot of that really helped me getting out of the hierarchical thinking. And I'm just looking at more and more ways to honor the creative individuals Mm-hmm. that are everywhere and and then also to treat everybody as a unique individual and uh, so much of the news and just people's mindsets is to lump people into groups and assign them identities based on the group which the groups are made up anyway and then the identity is made up and you know maybe statistically it's said that 71% of I don't know American <laughs> Caucasian males think this but it doesn't yeah. really mean you think it and if you thought it yesterday, it doesn't mean you think. Uh, so let's start with the how to choose. Yeah. So you've come up with all these businesses, or you and your partners have come up with all of these businesses. And if you're trying to start something, obviously you're going to have a bunch of different ideas and you're going to be kind of moving in a lot of different directions at first. But how do you kind of zoom in and focus on, like, okay, this is the thing that we're going to move forward with? Yeah, so for us, it's really driven more by what the prospective partner wants to do, mm. and then obviously filtered, or not obviously filtered for the marketplace and make sure it makes sense. But yeah. uh, you know, our experiences, although I have lots of ideas I want to do, the hardest part is not getting it going. It's who's going to be in there for the next ten or twenty years doing it, and uh, that seems to go better when the person who's going to be doing it believes in it, and it came from them. You know, so. Uh, so a big piece of it is that, and then, you know, because it's not a, everything takes longer, like you said, than most people think, so it's not a two-week process to decide, and you learn a lot about, we learn a lot about the other people, and we see how they handle the length and, you know, whatever that process, because people who are long-term gratification keep going, mm. people who are determined keep going, people who really want it, not just kind of like to keep going hmm. uh, and if they don't want it doesn't make them bad people but it's probably not going to work out so that's really how it came I mean Miss Kim you know Jihei's from Korea she worked with us for I don't know seven eight years before we opened you know so it was a long three-year conversation or whatever that started with a street cart uh, called Sound Street at the time that we opened you know that she ran okay so it's really just the individual says, oh, that'd be interesting, or I'm really turned on to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more than interesting because it's you're basically committing your life yeah, to it. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, and I think you already know this, but I mean, the hot pen technique that we use on the vision writing where you basically sit down and free write, and the whole point is to write as fast as you can, not to think about it and write it down, but more to look, see what comes out when you do that. And my pretty strong belief at their very strong belief at this point having done it for a long time is that most people know what they want most of us but we've been trained to overthink it and worry about it back to worrying and then we bury it and uh, 
you know, the hot pen gets past the worrying and it taps what's really in our hearts. And it doesn't mean we're obligated to do it, but because sometimes there's something you really want, but it has some negative consequences in your life that lead you to choose not to do it. But I think it's very different to mindfully choose not to do something because of something else than it is to just continually subconsciously not do it and then beat yourself up and be mad at the world and all that. Okay, so that brings up like a tangential question, which is why? Like, why do you think people do that? Or if you've done it yourself, why do we try and like, has there, is there anything you've learned or observed? Yeah, totally. I mean, because we're, we've internalized all these other voices because there's lots of criticism and there's, you know, one of the natural laws, as you know, is strengths lead to weaknesses. So the more you read, it's great, but the downside is you're, you, it's easy to overthink everything because every five minutes there's another story about somebody who did it a different way, you know. Mm. And at some point you just got to do it. And that, it took me a long time to understand that because I was worrying about it always. Is this the wrong thing, the right thing? And, yeah. you know, like I said in your first question, I mean, because I had already given notice, then I had less worry because I only had another seven weeks or whatever till I was unemployed anyway. Um, you know, but I just, uh, in the fourth book, I quote uh, Rollo May, the psychologist. Yeah. Said the opposite of courage is not cowardice, it's conformity. And I, you know, I think that's true. And even for those of us like you and me that are intent on not conforming, we still, if we're not super mindful, we're going to end up unwittingly conforming anyway. Hmm. You know, because we lock into resistance to the thing that we're, we don't like, but we're actually stuck in relationship with it. And, you know, that's a lot of what the anarchist stuff helped me to understand is to stop fighting against something and more focus on creating what I wanted. Okay. When you were saying that, you just reminded me of a, another quote you pulled from the author, uh, I think it's pronounced Rebecca Solnit? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you talked about this idea, well, the quote is, leave the door open for the unknown. Yeah. The door, yeah, the door into the dark, that's where the most important things come from. Yeah. So kind of just trusting that yeah. kind of instinctual serendipitous yeah, kind of Yeah, and I think some people interpret that to be like, don't plan anything, but I, you know, for, which is fine. I mean, if it's their life, they can do it however they want. But hmm. I mean, for me, it's like, there's some things that I know that I want. So why not be upfront with them in the vision and then understand that within that framework that other stuff's gonna happen that's not exactly how we planned it. But yeah, I mean, the unexpected happens by the minute. Yeah. <laughs> We were talking about it this morning, like just the, we've only known each other about a year. Uh -huh. And he was like, well, if you wouldn't, so he's my weightlifting coach. Uh -huh. And if I wouldn't have thought to do this on this specific day of the week, he never would have bumped into me and we never would have known each other. And we were just sitting there over breakfast, like, wow, okay. You never know. <laughs> Pretty crazy. Right, but that both, I mean, I, I would imagine you already wanted to do this and that you, he had, Dimitri had interest in doing something. Yeah, but it was a fluke, right? Like it but was the fluke, right? But the fluke is the connection. Yeah. But your interest and desire to do it wasn't a fluke. Like it's not like you met and realized you had the desire. No. Right. <laughs> so that's all I'm saying is I, I think there's some things that we already know that we want. Mm -hmm. And when we start going after them, good things happen that support that pursuit. Definitely agree with that. All right, so even though you kind of called out one of the hard parts of it, which is when you read a lot of books, yeah, you kind of get in your own head and start yeah. to... Well, you don't have to, but it's easy to get stuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so 
despite all that, um, obviously I wouldn't be sitting here with you if I didn't like reading. Um, and I talk about this a lot. I love to go out and find new information and try yeah. and inform what I'm doing. So, yeah. you are one of the most voracious readers I've ever come across, oh. at least <laughs> based on your bibliography. Trying, man. Can never get enough in. <laughs> Uh, so I'd be curious, obviously it's impossible for you, well, maybe not impossible, uh, but difficult to say like what are your, your top three, your top five. So. Oh. Yeah, I don't know what the top three, top five, but I mean, you know, they're on the reading list in the books. I mean, Brenda Ewan's book, if you want to write, helped me a lot. Uh, Robert Henry's book, The Art Spirit, which I read a few years while I was working on part four, I really liked a lot. Yeah. Uh, Business-wise, Peter Block, Peter Kestenbaum. Uh, I like all their stuff. Uh, uh, Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. Yeah. Uh, just, you know, you mentioned Rebecca Solnit. Uh, I like a lot of her work a lot. Uh, yeah, there's tons. I mean, Emma Goldman. Mm. So is it? That's Emma interesting. Goldman. Yeah. So you're talking about which you don't hear a lot of. Most people are saying like this book or that book, but you're talking about people. So well, do yeah, you dig in? wrote a lot of books. I mean, so it's not like there's one book. You know, Peter Block's written like eight books. They're all good. I mean, I, you mm. know, Emma Goldman, you know, it's tons of stuff that I went through to sift things together to put in that pamphlet. I, mean. I can imagine. <laughs> so is there any process that you take or follow to find stuff? Is it just purely like, I read this, they mentioned that? It's a lot of that, but people recommend things. Very cool. Yeah, it's the never-ending search. Same it way is. I find music, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, I might as well. What are you listening to? Uh, well, I stumbled on this guy in Australia that records under the name Trappist Afterland. That I okay. like a lot. Uh, what else am I listening to? Uh, the new Joan Shelley album. She's from Kentucky. Is very good. Quite a bit. I listen to a lot of music. Right on. I think that'll do it. Okay. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you.